Morning. Please join me, if you would, in your copies of the Scripture or in your bulletin this morning to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. And we'll be reading this morning from verse 25 down to the end of the chapter in verse 34. These words are the living, inspired, and errant words of Jesus Christ. As he spoke them in the Sermon on the Mount, so he continues to speak them today to us. Hear them well. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow, nor reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? What shall we drink? Or or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble." Gracious Heavenly Father, as we read these words this morning, for some of us, they are sharp, and for others, they are soothing. We ask that all of us, Lord, would submit ourselves to your teaching. Be with us this morning and guide our hearts. In your Son's holy and strong name, amen. Jesus' words this morning, they address that all-too-common feeling we have, right, when, for example, we receive that unexpected bill, or the bill we receive is larger than we had expected, or when we discover perhaps a new skin discoloration, or feel a new lump, or feel a new pain in our body. Or when we are expecting a a child or a spouse home over an hour ago and they aren't responding to their texts. Or when we have that important meeting or or project due and there's a job promotion writing on it. Or just your job interview or just your first date. Or when we notice that the money leaving our checking account is pretty close to the same or maybe more than the money coming in to the account. 
It is that feeling that we often call anxiety, as it's translated here, or stress, or perhaps even panic. Of course, we could go on and on, but I doubt that we have to, right? Because at one point or another, we, we find ourselves familiar with this. When we hear the word anxiety, all of us have at least one, probably multiple memories that come to mind, maybe memories from the last week. The point is that everybody needs to be touched by Jesus' words this morning because his words this morning address, in one way or another, a trial that all of us face, a fear or concern over things that are ultimately not in our control, although we wish that they were. In fact, it is not uncommon, right, that we might find ourselves in periods of time where our whole life is driven by this feeling. We let these things drive us from the moment our feet hit the floor to when our head hits the pillow at night. The, the engine in you runs on the fuel of, of fear, a fear that if you stop or if you mess up or if you disappoint, you will be jeopardizing your way of life, jeopardizing the security of your family, jeopardizing a, a reputation you have worked hard to build. Some of us have this all-controlling worry, sometimes out of which we build our whole life. And we, we do this, we do what we do to protect what we have, but we do what we do because we're afraid that we won't be able to get what we don't yet have. So Jesus this morning is not simply talking about the emotion that comes with shortness of breath and a rapid pulse, although that is included here. But in a word, he is aiming at that fact that so often we are anxiously ambitious for the things of this world. Look in verse 32. This is what the Gentiles are doing. The word for seek here, it's very strong. You could say that they are desperately chasing after these temporal securities. But whatever kind of anxiety we feel in whatever form we face it, part of what Jesus teaches us this morning in this text is that at the very bottom, what anxiousness is, is a faith issue. A faith issue. Look at verse 30. Anxiety may express itself in various ways, but the basic descriptor that Jesus uses here to describe us in our state of anxiety is you of little faith. Now, if the two basic things we've said this morning is that all of us at some point face anxiety and that Jesus says that when we are anxious, we are those of little faith, then what that means is that at some point or another, you are the little faith one. That might sting a little bit. Maybe you've recalled this phrase or you, you, you've heard it and you've thought, it's a phrase I could use to describe my weaker brother, but not myself. Jesus disagrees. You of little faith in those all-too-frequent moments 
when you allow your life or your mind to be run by the fuel of, of fear. But you are not alone. You're in decent company. This is what also, uh, this is also the word that Jesus uses to describe his own disciples. Right, a few chapters from now, this is the word that Jesus uses to describe the disciples when they become terrified on the stormy sea. Think about this for a moment. These are fishermen, right? The Sea of Galilee is their livelihood, so they know where the sea is deep, they know where the sea is shallow, they are very familiar with the kinds of weather that one might face while on the sea. So this is not the, the city slicker from Jerusalem who's seasick over a few waves. No, these are the veritable experts on how to evaluate how dangerous a storm actually was. And they are the ones saying to Jesus, Jesus, we are going to die unless you do something. So by any typical standard, the disciples here are not cowards. They are being realists. And Jesus says to them, you have little faith. Why? Because they were still not being realist enough. They could look at the wind and, and the waves. They could conclude that death was, was imminent, but they still weren't accounting for another fact which was just as real as the deadly weather, but of even greater significance which was that God was in the boat. And it wasn't just that God was with them and, and near to them and going through the storm alongside of them, but that the one who was with them was Yahweh, Lord of the sea and of the dry land and of weather and of life and of death. They had the tender and safe keeping presence of, of the one who wields absolute sovereignty. But they failed to see and account for this in their moment of fear. They hadn't yet learned the lesson that Jesus is trying to teach them in this passage. And so he reminds them of the lesson when he says, you of little faith. Jesus does not call you, you of little faith here, uh, simply because he's trying to chide you or put you down. But when you have that feeling of anxiety against which you feel sometimes helpless and hopeless, no, he convicts us of this in order to uncover, in order to reveal that those driving fears we have, which we often just chalk up to realism, that these things are actually an occasion of our fallenness. And they are an occasion for us to have stronger faith. They are an occasion for you to stop and take stock 
of all of the facts, even the ones of greatest significance. So then he reveals that our faith may be weaker than we thought it was, but then he also begins to do the work of strengthening our faith. How does he do that? He says, look at the birds, look at the flowers, look at the Gentiles, look at what my father does. He draws our attention to these things this morning to remind us that we have a sovereign, safekeeping God. When all you see are numbers in the bank accounts, or empty cupboards, or disappointing closets, when the what-ifs for tomorrow are rattling around in, in your head, Jesus says, don't lose sight of what is also real, but of even greater significance. The one who is with you and who is for you through all things is God. His kingdom is eternal, yours fragile. His security is certain, yours is certain to fail. So in the face of fearsome circumstances, look to God, the sovereign, safekeeping, caretaking God. He promises every blessing to those who believe in his Son. He calls you to lift your eyes beyond what you don't have now or whatever it is you are treating as ultimately significant but what is actually not. Now when we hear this this passage, when we read these words or we recall it, the first thing that comes to mind often is, is the negative command because he gives it three times, right? Look at verse 25. Therefore, do not be anxious, verse 31. Therefore, do not be anxious, verse 34. Therefore, do not be anxious, three times. But the command is not simply here to delete the feeling of anxiety from your life. You cannot do that. His his call is actually to do something else, to shift your concerns to account for all of the facts, as it were. Look at verse 33. Don't be anxious, but seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Put off, put on. In other words, the heart of this passage is not simply about not worrying, but about being about the right things in the right order. Jesus' goal here is not only to calm our, our worried nerves, but to bring us into alignment, as it were, with his kingdom. So why does Jesus, you might have asked this, perhaps you've not, why, do, why does Jesus start talking about anxiety in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. It's actually kind of strange that he does this here. It doesn't seem to fit. The passage here has a bit of a different flavor than the others around it, if you will. It's a bit longer than the other parts of the sermon. Jesus includes, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is giving a picture of the ethics of the kingdom. And it is a a very high calling. It's very demanding. The stakes are often very high. Hatred is is murder. Lust is tantamount to adultery. 
You must give to the needy. Don't judge others without examining yourself. He goes on to say, the way is narrow and few will find it. Many will come and say, Lord, Lord. And he'll say, I don't know you. Don't miss the context, which is the high calling of participation in the kingdom of God. This passage is not Jesus' version of the song, Don't Worry, Be Happy. It is Jesus' reorientation of the desires of our hearts. Not the things the Gentiles chase after, but the kingdom of God and His righteousness. When that is your heart's deepest concern, it comes with the anxiety-killing confidence that everything else will follow. If not in this life, then in the next. Where indeed, God will have worked out all things for the good of those who love Him. This is a big picture text that invites you to share and and participate in the concerns of God's kingdom. Although, yes, do notice the brilliant shepherding of Jesus Because in the middle of this high calling, he demonstrates the implications the kingdom has for those deepest and most difficult and most sensitive concerns. When you believe in Jesus, you come to be a part of his kingdom. And one of the things that that means for you is that his reign extends to all places in your life, even down to the deepest crevices of your deepest cares. Jesus says, even there, make room for my kingdom. Even in the place of your worries and nervousness and fear, even in the place where you are afraid of what might happen tomorrow, don't forget to account for the truth of greater significance. You have a sovereign, safekeeping God, and He knows your cares better than you do. Now, for the remainder, then, of our time this morning, what I'd like to do is consider how Jesus strengthens our faith in this passage. I'd like to continue to to, to contend to to drive this this point home that you have a sovereign, safekeeping king by using Jesus' own logic and his arguments. And as I read this passage, I count at least eight reasons. So here is an overview of Jesus' eight-point sermon that he gives to strengthen your faith. So reason number one. Anxiety is a sign that you are serving another master. Look at verse 25 with me. The first word, therefore. So therefore means he is concluding that we shouldn't be anxious from what he had just said previously. 
So look at verse 24, if you will. You cannot serve both God and money. So do you see the connection? Jesus is, is connecting anxiety to serving money and earthly wealth as the greater priority. You can't make both God and your own financial security equal priorities. It is impossible. Jesus knows this. And what is true for Jesus' own day when he was walking the earth is true for ours, that money and wealth and financial security is part of what makes so many people tick. It's the basic concern that drives them. So if I decide right, that the most important thing about my life is, is that I make as much as I can and establish as much of my own security as I can, then of course, Jesus says, I'm going to be anxious because I will be always running up against the fact, the immovable, incontrovertible fact, that I cannot, in fact, establish my own security and peace by that route. On the other hand, seeking the kingdom first means investing your whole life purposes into that which has eternal security. We could put it quite frankly and say that the kingdom does not come with a ticking clock that runs out when you die. Slavery to money, however, will always end up being in vain. Death will make your love for money irrelevant. Service to God is never in vain. Jesus says you can only serve one master. Therefore, do not anxiously pursue the one. Rather, joyfully pursue the other. And what will make sense of how you gain and deploy your wealth is your greater priority and concern with the kingdom of God. Reason number two that Jesus gives. God has a plan for your life and your body. Look again at verse 25. He says, don't be anxious about what you eat or what you wear. Why? He says, isn't life more than food and the body more than clothes? If he already gave you this miraculous gift of, of life and a body, it stands to reason he will provide for its more basic needs. But I also think that there is a, a deeper point to be made here. Think big picture again. Think with reference to God's kingdom. What is the purpose of your life and of your body? Not simply to be filled with food and covered in cotton, but to be filled with righteousness and covered in glory. Quite literally, back in the Beatitudes, Jesus said to hunger and thirst for righteousness. Elsewhere, we, we know from Scripture, we are told that we are to put on, clothe ourselves with righteousness. The fact that we wear clothes at all, and, in fact, and, and the fact that God first covered Adam and Eve, these things are, are shadows of the fact that what God intends for us is to cover us in the glory of His Son. If those things are true, if, if that is what the life and the body are for, then it is out of accord with reality 
out of accord with how God made us for us to flip the priorities and think that our life is ultimately about filling and pleasuring and glorifying this fallen body. Again, to the extent that we flip the priorities, we will feel anxiety. If God gave you this meaningful life, Jesus says, and he gave you this body in his very image, you can trust him in his providence to take care of it. Now, of course, God is not saying here that he will end all starvation, that he will end all nakedness. The point is that your daily needs are not in your sovereign hands, but his. When you start to feel anxious about these daily things, respond by remembering the significant fact that God in his sovereignty is weaving together in a tapestry our whole lives and all of our experiences together for our good and his glory. So what Jesus does in his next two reasons is he gives us examples of how God's massive sovereignty extends even down to the safekeeping of the details of the smallest parts of creation. Although not exactly in these words, he is saying here, in effect, that you, my people, are the crown of my creation. If I have not forgotten the birds or the flowers, then certainly I cannot have forgotten you. So reason number three. God loves birds. Verse 26. Every day the bird wakes up early. Every day the bird gets the worm. The bird is fed. The bird does not have to think about the fact that somebody else might get the worm first. The worm does not have to be concerned and talk with its fellow birds about the scarcity of worms. The bird does not have to store worms in a bank. The point of this verse is not, right, that working or saving is pointless, right, but that we are to trust in God instead of worrying about tomorrow's worm. The next time you are bird watching, and yes, if you were ever wondering, you could take this text as a biblical basis for that good pastime. The next time you are watching a bird find its next meal, you can remember the words of Christ and take it as a sign. Even that fragile animal, worth some loose change, can presume every day to eat from the Father's hand. How much more does he promise to hold out to you for whom he paid the life of his son? That's what bird watching teaches you. God cares for the birds, therefore don't be anxious. Reason number four. Your worry doesn't work. Look at verse 27. Now at this point, after comforting us with the, with the birds, there's a bit of a, a stinging common sense that Jesus brings to bear here. Uh, the word for span or, or hour 
literally refers to something like 18 inches. So you could paraphrase the question, like Jesus is saying, has anyone here added this much to their whole life by being anxious? Anxiousness has contributed nothing to your, your life, your happiness, your flourishing. In fact, anxiousness isn't it precisely the, the, the fact that we are concerned or, or bothered by the fact that we can't change our circumstances or we can't guarantee the circumstances for tomorrow? See, Jesus is, is taking here our daily stress that some of us have, even that which we feel is necessary, even that which we feel is, is justified, that we feel is the result of an accurate accounting of our situation. And, and Jesus is saying, just like he did to the disciples on the boat, your anxiety is small and insignificant when set next to the massive sovereignty of God. It is that same sovereignty which fashioned oceans, laid foundations for continents, created the stars, and feeds every bird. What can your anxiety do? Is what Jesus asks. Reason number five. The Father beautifies the flowers. Verses 28 to 30, he says this. Now, flowers last for a season, right? Sometimes flowers last for a week. There are flowers that last an afternoon. And eventually, they shrivel up, they die, and the splendor of the field becomes good for nothing but kindling for your fire to stay warm or make bread. At some point, even you, right, just in your daily course of life, walking around, maybe walking to church this morning, you have trampled on one of God's creations, one of these flowers. And, and you didn't even think about it. But God did. He fashioned the delicate flowers. Even the beauty of dandelions and weeds, God cares about. How much more will he clothe you? Reason number six. The Gentiles chase after what to eat and what to drink and what to wear. Now in the present context, not in all texts, but in this text for a moment, we can trade the word Gentile here for unbeliever. Now the point here is not that you shouldn't do something just because an unbeliever did it. Right? No, the, the point is that unbelievers chase after desperately pursue these things because they have nothing else to chase after. Right? When, when you have looked at unbelievers, maybe you've had this thought or some version of this thought to yourself, you've, you've thought, if, if you only knew the riches that God holds out to you, if you, if you only could taste the sweetness of of the kingdom, if you could only account for the fact of greater significance, that you live 
in God's world. Do you see? Jesus is saying that when we are anxious, it is us who slip into unbelieving thinking because we fail to account for the fact of greater significance that we live in God's world. Reason number seven, right on the heels of this, is perhaps the simplest and the sweetest. God knows what you need. He knows what you want. He knows what you need. He knows when you need something you don't want. He knows when you want something you don't need. Parents, how would you feel if every morning your child woke up in a complete panic over whether or not they were going to be able to eat breakfast that day? Maybe some of you don't have to imagine. But what if your, your, your child lived in a constant state of uncertainty? Instead of playing, instead of exploring, they just sat and worried about whether they would have clothes to wear or have anything to eat. How would that make you feel? You, you would be desperate to communicate to them as clearly as you possibly could that if they only knew how much you, you knew them and how much you were aware of, of their needs, even to a greater extent that, that they were, how much you love them, how much you are invested in the best of your abilities to work all things together for their good. The only difference is that our Father in Heaven always has the ability. Reason 8, verse 34. Each day has enough trouble to worry about. It's almost like Jesus gets to the end here and He's, he's aware that His disciples are still unsettled uh, and just not getting the point. And so He wraps up by, just for a moment, setting aside perhaps the higher or more ideal motivations and, and appeals to sort of a whimsical uh, common sense. But at the same time, he, he is teaching here in, in this metaphor, each day can worry about itself. He's teaching us implicitly that His mercies are new every morning. If tomorrow brings new trouble, there will be new grace to meet it. It's a way of Jesus calmly putting his hand on our shoulder and saying, don't worry about the what ifs. Don't worry about what is beyond your control. Deal faithfully with the responsibilities and the relationships I have put in front of you. Image me well. I'll take care of the rest. So let's close this morning with this question. Why does Jesus invite you to look at the lilies? Our culture today has a lot of different things to say about anxiety. You maybe have been told that the key to your anxiety is a certain diet or exercise. 
And of course, while these things may help physical dimensions of your anxiety, they will not answer it. You may have been told that anxiety is normal. Everyone has it. It's not a problem. What you and your friends ought to do is encourage one another and affirm and validate one another in your anxiety. Jesus disagrees, although he values encouragement and friendship. Neither is the reason that Jesus has you look at the birds and the flowers is that these things are just in themselves therapeutic and calming. Although I suspect that is part of the reason and part of what's baked into his gift of creation. God has given us ways of taking care of ourselves. He has given us one another to encourage one another. He has given us the beautiful gift of creation. All of these things as means and strategies and ways for us to cultivate a culture of Christ-reflecting peace. But all of these strategies are partial. They must be paired with the eyes of faith that can account for all the facts, even the ones of the greatest significance. Consider the lilies and believe. That's why Jesus calls us to look at the flowers, to see with eyes of faith this twofold fact. First, that God has the gentle touch to set each delicate petal in place, and then to paint it with the most breathtaking of colors, and that he is willing to apply such a touch to something so far less permanent and important than you. And second, at the same time, that he can do such a thing because he is the sovereign creator who holds the very life and existence of all things within his whim. It is this supremely sovereign and lovingly safekeeping God who is with you through all things and who promises you this. Don't be anxious, but come. When you are part of my kingdom, I will give you all things. Don't be anxious. Not a hair can fall from your head without his will. Not a flower in the field can fall without his will. And God's will for you in Christ Jesus is that the glory and splendor of the fields of flowers will pale in comparison to your glorious dress. Consider the lilies and believe. Let's pray. Our good and our loving, sweet, kind, completely powerful Heavenly Father. Give us hearts to rest in you. Give us eyes to see 
that you are with us. And give us eyes to see who it is that is with us. Heavenly Father, help us not in unbelief to scan your work in vain. Grant us faith. Grant us peace. In your Son's name, amen.